Amen. Thank you, John and the team for leading us in worship this morning. Well, today we are going to be uh, making a little bit of a transition, starting a new sermon series this morning, um, and it's left upon uh, me as that responsibility because our very own lead pastor, uh, Chris Legg, is not here this morning, but rather is filling, fulfilling another pulpit role uh, in Frisco at Frisco Bible Chapel. We had uh, Wayne Broderick, the pastor there, come fill in here during Chris's sabbatical. So this is them in turn switching places and Chris repaying the favor. So uh, we, we want to make sure that, uh, that we remember him uh, this morning as he is probably on to his second service and then he'll have a third even after this. And so we want to remember him in our prayers. Uh, uh, as that congregation is one that has been prayed for, and as you as a congregation has been prayed for this morning. Um, and so uh, as we begin our time, I'm going to invite you uh, to open up, um, open up God's Word and flip over uh, to the book of John. And so we are going to be, uh, for, the, for the next couple weeks and months, and maybe if we go at my pace, years, <laughs> we'll see, uh, we're going to be working our way through the gospel narrative, uh, the book of John, uh, and seeing kind of the richness uh, that is there for our lives. Uh, so I'm going to be reading from um, one of the Bibles out of the racks in the chairs. If you don't have a Bible this morning, feel free to grab that one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take that one as our gift uh, to you. Um, we're going to be on page 886 and there. If you have a digital Bible, you can navigate over. We're going to be reading from uh, the uh, ESV version this morning. So in preparation uh, of uh, engaging our bodies physically, again, for our minds to be astute to God's word and in reverence to God's word, I'm going to invite you all to stand uh, with me this morning as we read our passage um, together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hear the very words of our Lord. Let us pray. Father God, May the reading and the hearing of your word this morning be worship to you today. Holy Spirit, transform us in according to that word and aid us as we bear witness to it. And it is in these things that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all go ahead and have a seat. 
our time this morning is going to kind of be split up under kind of two parts. One, um, we need to kind of have a little bit of some conversation about some context, uh, about the book that we're reading, who wrote it, when it was written, so that we can better understand some of the themes present that will help us now and for the rest of the time that we are going to be looking through the book. And so that'll be kind of our first part, is we're going to take that into consideration. And then we're going to kind of in view of that, look at the text that we just read and proclaimed together uh, to see the truth and the application uh, for us this morning. Now, of course, uh, um, here's, the, here's the Bible quiz, the easy softball answer. Uh, so everybody gets to participate and feel really smart. Uh, and we, as we talk about the authorship of the Gospel of John, we all know that who wrote the book? John, yay, we get one, we can tally that one off, a simple one. John wrote the book, all of our gospels uh, are noted after their authors. Now, even though John doesn't specifically identify himself as the writer, uh, we know that through context and through church tradition, uh, that it is the apostle John, uh, the follower of Jesus, who records everything uh, that we read and everything in this book. Now, John doesn't refer to himself as John, um, but rather when we see John referred in the book, we're talking about John the Baptist or, or John the Baptizer. Here, John the Evangelist ha has monikered a, a term for himself uh, that whenever he talks about him, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What a great title to call upon yourself. I don't, I don't know if this was kind of a snub result to all the other disciples of like, hey, 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 I was his favorite. Or if this was just some ironic term because, of course, Jesus loved all. And so he's just saying, well, of course, he loved me. Uh, I actually think that this is John reminding himself of the truth that is still in awe to him, that he is still dumbfounded by the fact that Jesus, his master, Lord, and Savior, would love even him. And this is a great way to us to follow our conversation about identity, right? Maybe on a practical note, as we have been talking about identity, and as Chris has led us even last week in that conversation, here we have a disciple who is reminding himself of the truth about who he is. He was a disciple whom Jesus loved. And so this is, this is the author that we have. Uh, the date that John writes this is actually a lot later than all the other Gospels. And in fact, most scholars think somewhere between about 20 to 30 years after all the other Gospel writers comes the Gospel of John. So this is John perhaps later in his life, uh, reflecting upon all the truths that he knows and accounts, and he wants to present those uh, to his readers for a very specific purpose, a very specific purpose. And we find that purpose actually at the end of the book. So if you actually flip over towards the end in actually John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, we see John make his purpose for his whole book explicitly clear. And if you're an underliner or a highlighter, um, either on your hard copy or in your digital copy, there's some key words that I want you to highlight uh, in this verse that'll help us, not just now, but actually for the entirety of our time in the book of John. So look down at John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. And the first word is right off the beginning. It's Jesus. I want you to highlight Jesus. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may, second word I want you to underline, believe. And so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, see believing has a purpose, by believing you may have life. Third word I want you to underline, life. 
in his name. So these are the three words, Jesus, belief, and life. Um, So now Jesus did all these signs, and these are written so that you may believe, so that in your belief you may have life. This is the the paramount three kind of statements of what John is going to try to do throughout his whole book. He's going to try to present who Jesus is so that you would naturally have a right response to follow an acknowledgement of who he is with belief in him, and thus by belief in him you experience a life that is given unto you. So you recognize who Jesus is, respond in belief, and participate in the life that he gives. This is the theme that we're going to run into time and time again uh, throughout the book of John, because John's entire gospel is focused towards Jesus as the epicenter. It's, in fact, it's, it's, it's a bit of a repetitive book. We'll see even in what we read, John repeats himself. And we'll see him repeat himself often with this imagery throughout the whole book um, because it's always focusing in on Jesus. It's kind of like a bee buzzing around a flower, right? Moving onto above the flower, maybe below the flower and around the flower. All of these are simply perspectives, differing angles, but it's all the same flower, this is what the gospel does, is it's John accounting from all these different perspectives, but it's the same flower, it is Jesus that is at the epicenter. And so who is Jesus, according to John? Because each one of our gospel writers um, actually presents Jesus, uh, presents a perspective about Jesus with, a, with, a, with, again, a purpose or an intentionality. And John is just like all the others, Um, except he's providing a little bit of a different perspective. Matthew uh, writes his perspective primarily to an audience of Jews, and his big message is that Jesus is king. That's what he's trying to accomplish in the book. That's why actually in the first chapter, Matthew starts with the genealogy that goes all the way back to King David, because if Jesus is king, he must be in the line of a king, King David. And that's why, that's why Matthew begins with that genealogy to show that Jesus is king. Luke actually does something similar, but his audience is a little bit different. He's writing uh, to the, he's not writing to Jews, but rather he's writing to the Greeks. And so in writing to the Greeks, he provides uh, a key message, which is that Jesus is man, specifically son of man. So he provides a genealogy early on that goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, because that's what he's trying to prove, that Jesus is the son of man. And that's what's his message. Now, we skipped over uh, Mark in the middle, um, but Mark actually has a specific audience as well. He's writing to the Romans, probably telling Peter's account, um, and his main message is that Jesus is a servant. We see this in uh, chapter 10, verse 45, uh, that the Son of Man has not come to, uh, ser- to, to be served, but to be a servant to man. And actually, it's interesting because to the Romans and to a, for a servant, genealogies don't matter or don't play, and so actually Mark leaves out a genealogy because it's not integral to his message. But John does include a genealogy here, but John is writing to a mixed batch, a different audience because it's much later. So it's the church that's in existence, primarily made of Gentiles, but there's also Jews that are present. And so John is writing both to the Greek, but then also to the Jew. Uh, And in that, his main message is that Jesus is God. So what genealogy do you think he then has and starts with? The very one we read. A spiritual genealogy. A spiritual genealogy proving that Jesus is, in fact, God. 
And so that's what we get when we enter into our conversation. Now, we again are moving from another conversation that I want to hearken back on once again, and that was the one about identity, because one of our main understandings, the kind of three-legged stool or maybe the uh, three-spoked wheel for understanding Christian living, all of our Christian lives, was a concept that that we have been uh, illustrating, which was that our theology uh, shapes our identity, which shapes our praxeology, which is just, again, a fancy way of saying what we believe or know about God affects who we are because of what God said, the identity bestowed upon us. And because of who we are, it determines what we do, how we live this out. Again, we talked about how this is different from the culture, right? The culture moves the opposite way. They say it is what you do that builds up who you are. And once you attain who you are, then you get to dictate who is God. But that's not the case. We see God's economy working exactly opposite of man's. And it is, again, that it is our understanding of him revealed to us, which determines who he calls us to be, and thus how he strengthens and provides for us to live. Our identity, it comes from our theology and begets our behavior. It's that train of thought that we are going to be continuing here. But this morning, we're going to be focusing a lot on that first kind of spoke a lot on the theology. So I'm going to ask you as good Bible students to bear in with me and kind of focus because I know a lot of us for a lot of times it's a lot easier to hear kind of those applicational messages um, or perhaps those uh, it's really edifying to hear those identity stating messages. But today we're going to focus in on the God stating message here of what is John revealing about God? Who is God here? And how does the recognition of that theology affect all the others? Because again, as John is going to do this, he's going to present a Jesus who is God, worthy of belief, and the provider of life. And you may be thinking, well, um, well, that's a good message, but that's probably for somebody who doesn't believe, right? I mean, if the, if the goal is to see who Jesus is and to find belief in him, uh, well, then that would be a great message for the unbeliever. I'm, I'm probably going to go hang out in Romans or something and keep working out how I need, now that I have believed, how do I need to live this out? Um, but to do so would be to short sell this book as well, because it's not just for those who don't believe. It is also for those who implicitly believe. That he makes this, John makes this clear in uh, chapter 15, verse 7. He says this, recording Jesus' words. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me. So I loved you. Abide in my love. This term of abiding is something that has already been introduced by this point in chapter eight, uh, where Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So for you see, this story is a story presented for all of us. It isn't just simply for those who don't believe and a call to belief. It is also for those who do believe to continue in their belief, to abide by their believing. And through their abiding in Christ, he will provide the life that he has promised to all who believe. And so this is a continuing thing that I think is appropriate for all of us. But this story kind of starts with the climax, 
begins with the main punch, right? It's a little bit different than most of the stories that um, we probably celebrate or hearken or even probably love. Uh, and, and most of the times we love those suspenseful stories that kind of build up towards this great kind of proclamation, right? This, was, uh, this is why the, the director and movie producer M. Night Shyamalan, uh, or as my uh, roommate in college would always say, M. Night Shyamalan, he never knew how to finish it, but he was from Arkansas, so we forgive him. Uh, but it, M. Night Shyamalan, one of his things that made his success was the fact that he so easily presented a story that we would buy into, and we would be following, and then all of a sudden at the end, it would be, bam, here's how all the pieces fit together that we just didn't see and didn't see coming. And that was what made his stories a success. But here, John doesn't do this for us. He doesn't build up this mystery about who God is that then reveals all at the climax at the end of the book. He starts with the conclusion from the start. He says, Jesus is God. This is how we must start so that we can understand everything else to come. You know, when I was reflecting on, on this, I found it kind of rather endearing. Um, I found myself more uh, sympathetic or, or feeling kind of connected to John as a writer because it's, it's almost like John, who spent his time with the disciples, walking for years alongside Jesus, trying to figure this out, trying to understand and trying to grasp, and finally at the end of that journey, finally getting that Jesus is, in fact, God. But it comes through years of following and struggling through with that. And it's like John, to his reader and to us, wants to say, I've gone through all that, so you don't have to. Let me give you all a head start in this game because there's much more important things to come. Let me tell you right off from the bat, Jesus is God. So let's live like it. The acknowledgement of that truth, let it shape us. I think John is being endearing here by proclaiming this truth from us from the beginning. And this is what we must know because John, if anything, John wants us to have a really, really big Savior. He wants you to know about a Jesus who madly and crazily is in love with you and his encouragement is to fall madly in love with him. This, I think, is the call of God. And he sets off by presenting that call coming from God himself. So let's see that in our text this morning. We started with verse one, in the beginning was the word. Now the Greek here, in the beginning, is actually hearkened. It's the same words for that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament used from Genesis chapter one. And a lot of the imagery bounces back as we see things about light and Jesus as creator. We'll hearken back to Genesis one. We have in the beginning, basically, from time, the time before the time, the time that we now know. We oftentimes call this the pre-eternal past. This is, this is God always in existence, and from always in existence with God, we have that in the very beginning was the Word. Now, the Word... Um, the, the term here, the Greek term, is logos or logos, um, and it is, it is one that a lot of scholars kind of debate on whether this is a, an imagery that John is introducing that comes from a Jewish background, or one that is coming from a Hellenistic or Greek background, or is one that is perhaps a new element further introduced as a concept for the first time here. Um, I don't think we have to wrestle through and have those things in competition because we, again, we know his audience and his audience is both the Jew and the Greek. And so in that, I think there's probably all of it's true. There's probably stuff that resonated with the Jews. There's stuff that would resonate with the Greeks. And I think that there's a new element that's introduced here. 
to the Jewish audience, the familiar concept would have easily come out with the word um, because their Old Testament scripture is is full of the phrase, thus saith the Lord, thus says the Lord. The word to the Jewish mind was how God constantly accomplishes his purposes. It is the word in which God moves and accomplishes all things. It is his word that creates everything. It is his word that calls Israel apart from the nation. It is his word that brings blessing or judgment, that brings redemption and restoration. It is his word that, pro- that provides and promises to put all things right again. I think to the Jew, they would have seen this word existing from the beginning, that God from the beginning purposed a result. And it came from his word. Now, to the Greek, I think, again, it probably invoked some other images um, because for them, logos involved another scope of thought and actually it was one that was a philosophical thought that was common and prevailing of the time. We all know our good and great uh, uh, Greek philosophers like Socrates or Plato. Um, Here, this one actually is one that predates Aristotle or Plato or Socrates uh, and originates with a a philosopher named uh, Heraclitus. And Heraclitus presented this kind of understanding of the logos um, as something that was above all things, the logos exists and determines or rules everything that's subjugated under it. He even went so far to say that in mythology that the, the Greek gods themselves were subject to the logos, an overarching rationale or purpose Uh, There was a purpose for everything, that even the gods and even man's participation in their story functions. And to the Greek, it made sense of the level of which a, a person or a thing functions with their purpose attributes to the level or uh, the level of the truth that they're, that they, and, and, Ennobilized that they have within them. So again, it was to the Greek with the term logos, it was the, to the level that uh, the purpose is lived out is the level of the truth that exists in it. And this overarching truth was what was present. This would make sense or to make illustration if I came over to your house and let's say it was a fine autumn evening and there was a cool breeze outside and so you decided to open up your windows and open up your doors to let the cool air in. And as I'm walking in your front door to be greeted, I look down at the door and there propping open the door is a thick one and a half inch juicy ribeye steak shoved up under there to hold that door open. I would look at you like a madman, right? I would say, that's not that purpose. Steak is created to nourish my soul and to give me kind of an enjoyment and here you are just using it to prop open a door. How could you? I mean, I may excuse it if it was a, a cucumber shoved up there, a zucchini, because vegetables, we know that they're not as high of a purpose, right? But no, either way, we would still, we would still make note of that because that's not the way that it's intended. It's not its purpose. And so it would strike us in that comparison that this isn't rational. This isn't reasonable because this isn't the purpose that it was intended, Uh, This is the why we walk past and walk in doors constantly that are propped open and never make note of the doorstop shoved in there because the doorstop makes sense. It's functioning in its purpose. It's doing what it is supposed to do. Again, to the Greek, the logos is this overarching theme that gives purpose to everything. And we know, John says, from the very beginning, this logos, this purpose, this intentionality existed. Our, just, our philosophers, however, just disagreed and struggled with um, what that logos was. 
what that purpose was. But John makes that abundantly clear, and this is what we see in verse 14, is that in the beginning was the Word, and what we mean by the Logos is we mean Jesus himself. The overarching purpose that makes sense to all things, that puts in enactment of everything, it is in fact Jesus who accomplishes all of that. And this is John's message as he starts, in the beginning was the Word. Now, it is interesting, why, why does John start with this descriptor, the Word, when he has so many other favorite descriptors he uses, like light and life that we'll see, or like water, and will be a constant theme uh, throughout the rest of the book, or various other descriptors. I think somewhat of, by way of application, I think some way uh, John make sure that he starts with the word is because to John, there is no distinction between Jesus's words and Jesus's actions, Jesus's words and who Jesus was. I think this is all in accordance with each other. Again, we've already read it from his words, abide in me, abide in my word. Jesus apparently didn't have this discrepancy. He clearly uh, put these things together. And I think this is God's great message to us is that he provides himself, Jesus, God in his own form, Jesus, around everything which matters, the rationale for all things. So this brings us to our key concept number two that we see in our passage is that our second key concept is that Jesus is God. Reading again from verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here we find a great binary statement that defines so much of our Trinitarian understanding, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying you can't understand the Trinity, the Godhead, without understanding the relationships that exist between it. That God the Father and God the Son are one in the essence, that they have a, uh, a, a sense that belongs together. And this is what we get from Jesus being the Word, and the Word was with God. Uh, the Greek term proston theon denotes a physical presence, kind of a face-to-face -face reality. This is, this is to say that, being, that, the, that the word was being present with God, uh, that it was being orientated towards God, uh, that it was not separated from God, but if rightly so was with God. And we know this in a lot of examples in our own lives, right? Like if I asked you to fill in the blank, I would say peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, that makes sense. Or if I said macaroni and, or if I said steak and, ah, uh, this is where I get some differing ones. <laughs> I went with eggs. Um, because let's be honest, if you're going to sit down to breakfast and you got to suffer through a plate of eggs, throw some steak on there, right? But again, steak and potatoes, that's fine. Whether it all is peanut butter and jelly, macaroni and cheese, uh, steak and eggs, soup and salad, milk and honey, um, all, of, all of those things, there's a, there's a, there are things that can stand apart, but there's something right when they're considered together, right? When they're paired together that we see, yes, this is how it should be. This was the word with God. There's something right about them being together. The word was with God and the word was God. Because you see in the second little caveat here, the word being God breaks down our illustrations, cute illustrations about food, because all of those other things can be considered separately and can be understood that way. But we can't understand God the Father without understanding God the Son, the Son without understanding God the Holy Spirit, that these things are intrinsically in line. Jesus is God. It is inseparable. 
It isn't that he's some lower form of God. It isn't that he's some differing authority from God. It isn't that he is a different manifestation or creation from God. It is that he is God. This is actually where our Jehovah Witnesses friends um, get it wrong. Uh, they translate this passage that um, the word was with a God. They throw in that um, article that's not present in the Greek. And while it is an appropriate translation that Greek sometimes does it, it's also just as appropriate to leave out the article when the Greek is emphasizing the subject or the noun to be the focus there, um, which is all a little bit of a technical way to explain what, what they are doing is they're trying to set Jesus apart as the highest and created being, something that is special but not fully God. And that is a mistake. If we don't see it clearly in the language here, we see it again in verse 18. We'll see it and from, uh, as we've studied uh, or perhaps memorized Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, we'll see it in Colossians 1.17 or in Hebrews 1.3. Constantly, time and time again, the message from Scripture is that Jesus is God. You know, this is a popular thing even today to identify Jesus as this great moral teacher. All right? Because what happens when we identify Jesus as just a great moral teacher, better than us but not God, is then we now get to take everything we like about what he says and ascribe it to truth. But anything we don't like or anything that makes us uncomfortable, we get to write off and say, well, he's just a teacher. He doesn't do that. So much of our culture does that, but this can't be so. Jesus is not merely a logos trying to explain partial pictures of God. No, he is God. The logos is God. So when you see, when you hear, when you believe the Logos, you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. And this changes everything that you should do. He isn't part of your life. He is all of your life. But I'm getting ahead of myself and we'll come to life in a minute. But before we're there, I want to read um, uh, this quote from a scholar, C.K. Barrett, because I think these verses he rightly summarizes as saying, John intends that the whole of his gospel should be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and the words of Jesus are the deeds and the words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. And John moves into the vein of this blasphemous statement by uh, following up with this by attributing to Jesus something else, another role. And this is another key point that we must understand, that Jesus is creator. It says down, looking again at verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. This is just a comprehensive bookend statement to state something from both the positive and from the negative. The positive, Jesus has created everything. And the negative, nothing was made that Jesus didn't make. It's just to bring up to the solid point that Jesus is the creator. And this is what the Bible teaches us as the source of creation, um, that it is in fact Jesus. You know, I confess for a long time in my theology growing up, I thought that God was the creator, God the Father, and that Jesus was the redeemer. God created it and Jesus saved it. Um, but we know from this book uh, that actually one in the same, that Jesus is the creative force. He's the one who brought all life into existence. And thus, naturally, he is the one who can save it. If he has the authority and the power to bring it, he has the authority and the power to save it. Jesus is the creator creator of all things, including the pinnacle of creation. Because as we get in Genesis 1, it builds up to the pinnacle, the, the highlight of creation, which was life. And so we see this again, Jesus as the bringer of life. This is our next key concept. Jesus is life. 
Again in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. In him was life. Life is a key concept in the book of John. We're going to come back to this a lot um, because actually 36 times throughout this gospel, we'll see this concept of light emerge. That's more than any other New Testament book. Actually, even the close second is 17 times found in the book of Revelation, which John also wrote. So of course, John prioritizes this concept of life. This is a key to our understanding of the imagery that he uses if one over one quarter of the entire New Testament's usage of the, book, the, the concept of life is found in the book of John, then I think we need to take notice. But it's not just physical life that is being brought to mention here. There's a Greek word for that. That would have been bios or bios, and, and that would determine the physical living life. But the word he uses is zoe. It's an eternal life, an abundant life, a spiritual life, a life that is found only in Jesus, who is God. A life that is complete, full, and abundant. John 10, 10 says this in Jesus' own words recorded later. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have what? Life. And life abundantly. Eugene Peterson described it as the real and eternal life. More and better than anything I ever dreamed of. This is the life. It is not death. It's not the end. It is the beginning. It is life. The opposite of death. It is life. And we'll see in the same way in the opposite of darkness, we also see light. Jesus is the light, our next core concept. Looking again down in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I always kind of struggle with that last part um, because uh, myself and maybe some of y'all can relate. As a young boy, I was uh, trained to memorize scripture in the King James Version. Uh, and so when, whenever I come to this, I'm always like, as not, oh, wait, stop, overcome it. And because I would know it as the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness compre- comprehended it not. Sounds so formal and stoic. Um, and a lot of modern, tra- there are some modern translations that still uh, translate this word as comprehended, that the darkness doesn't comprehend the light. And where I think that there's a lot of po- uh, poetic imagery there, um, there's a lot to the fact that darkness uh, is, is, light is incomprehensible to darkness. I don't think it's the most accurate translation. I think we have um, what we read from the ESV more accurately, that it is not comprehending, it is overcoming that is present here. This is a statement of victory. This is a statement of existence and non-existence. This is a statement that says Jesus is the light and the darkness cannot overcome it. That Jesus, the light, overcomes all things that are dark. That we find victory in this statement. It is not simply that the darkness can still exist in the corner and just doesn't understand the light. It is that the darkness can't exist when the light is there. This type of power and imagery Chris mentioned last week, right, when we read Jesus' accounting of the church uh, talking to Peter in Matthew 16 when he says, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the same victory language that you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ get to proclaim. Jesus is the victor. He is the light. 
I had a uh, church member who um, uh, came to me even this week uh, asking kind of for a prayer about a specific uh, job transition that he was going through right now. And one of the things that he was asking me about was uh, he was saying, you know, one of the things I'm praying is I want Jesus to put me into a place where I am uh, surrounded by other believers because I came from a work environment uh, where I was the only Christian and it was just so hard. I just want that as a recipient. And part of my pastoral caring and heart went out to him and said, yeah, I really do want to pray for that. But unfortunately, I just read this scripture. And I kind of also want to say in the same light that I want you to have that and I want that blessing to be there. I also want you to live out this truth that we know that you are the light. And what greater place for the light to be than in the darkness? Go because the light will overcome that. It may not feel that way. It may not be presented that way. You may still struggle day in, day out, not knowing how this is going to play out. But you need to know, Christian, that the light will overcome. So go. Go be in the darkness and overcome it. I still prayed that he would get a job and have, have good Christians to work with. Uh, but still that they then, even in that environment, would go and find a place to be a light in darkness, because this is the truth that we see, that Jesus is the light. The victory is won. When I think about the victory being won, uh, an old Francis Pott hymn from uh, 1860 comes to mind, the strife is over, but the battle is done. And I'm going to read to you some of the, uh, um, uh, some of the lyrics from it this morning, so uh, bear with me. It'll be a little bit long. But he writes, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. The strife is over, the battle is done. The victory of life is won. The song of triumph has begun. Hallelujah. The powers of death have done their worst, but Christ, their legions, has dispersed. Let shouts of holy joy outburst. Hallelujah. Like all good Baptists, we'll skip the third verse. Moving into the fourth. He closed the yearning gates of hell. The bars from heaven's high portals fell. Let hymns of praise his triumphs tell. Hallelujah. Lord, by the stripes which wounded thee, from death's dread sting thy servants free, that we may live and sing to thee. Hallelujah. He is the victory. He is the life. Darkness is defeated and knows now death. And this is John's point that he's trying to get to us, is that Jesus is not merely the physical creator of light and life. He is the spiritual sustainer. And so as we acknowledge that, are we witnesses? Because here's where we move into, is we have a witness introduced here, a witness to the light Verses 16 through 13, uh, I've spent most of my time already in the first five, and so you're thinking, great, we have a lot more to go. How are we going to get in time to get to Luby's, right? Um, if you're thinking that, don't worry, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna skim over this last part. Um, but what I want you to do is as we walk through it, I want you to keep that overarching theme that we talked about, those three words in uh, John 20. We want to think about Jesus, we want to think about belief, and we want to think about life. Because again, what we see here is a witness introduced Witness is an important thing to both the Jew and the Greek, uh, to bear witness to something. Uh, and so we see a witness introduced, uh, the, na the similar name to the Apostle John, but this time it is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And a witness is introduced, and what he is doing is he is, in the introduction of the witness, we see again a move and a call towards belief, and a move and a call towards the acceptance of life. So read with me down verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
And what is the hope for anybody who bears witness or sees the light? What is our hope for him? That all might believe, underline believe, through him. There's the goal. There it is presented again. Now we have John being repetitive and the recap of everything we said. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came in to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was, in, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. This is the shame. This is the part of, that we get in here that we're kind of saddened, because the right response to Jesus is belief. But we know that the, uh, that the shame being called out here is that there are those, the ones he very that he came to that don't respond to him with belief. And we can't even fathom that reality. Uh, so John continues in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, all who believed in his name, he gave the right, there's belief, he gives the right to become children of God who were what? Born, life, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man not physically, but of God spiritually. We have the presentation yet again, a witness to Jesus, a call to belief, and a giving of life that comes. When we rightly see Jesus, we respond properly with belief. When we respond properly in belief, then thus we inherit as children of God life. And this is the great truth. The light he intended for us originally when he created us, the light he continues to call us to, and the life that he sustains us as he saves us. So I think as we close in our time, this is our application. Is let us abide in him, believing Jesus as the word, as God, as creator, as light, and as life. Not just in our minds, not just in our words, not just in our actions, but in all things, what we know is true. Let us confess that truth and live what is true. So John's coming back up and he's going to close our time as we move into a response, an invitation. This may be a time that you've talked with some Lance or, or a Welcome Home team or other church members about uh, coming and being a part of this church. And maybe you want to declare in front of us, uh, I know the life and I want to live life out with this broken body of believers uh, who are redeemed by him. Then this is the time to come forward and do that. Uh, maybe it is your response this morning that you need to pray, whether it's up here or at your seat, and to pray about this theology, this great truth, a desperate prayer of the Lord, let what I know is true reflect about who I am and how I live out who I am. Maybe it'll lead you to the time of confession. Maybe you need to lean over to your spouse and confess, I'm sorry. Maybe you need to find somebody in the other side of the room, I, I apologize how I haven't lived this out well. Whatever it is and however you need to respond, this is the time that I invite you to stand uh, and sing, to kneel, to pray, whatever it is, this is your time to respond to God's word this morning.